Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who I think enjoys single elimination games. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. A strong opening. I think I'm correct. I will say definitively you are correct. It probably has a big thing to do with me having no vested interest in any of these teams, really. Uh, I think maybe if a team that I rooted for were on the verge of elimination, I would maybe want one more game. But yes, I've enjoyed (laughs) the finality and therefore importance of these individual fixtures as opposed to, well, I guess in two weeks we'll find out if this game actually mattered. Yeah, so these Champions League quarterfinals, just for people who aren't keeping up, instead of being the usual two legs because of COVID and all that, um, it's in Portugal and it is one leg only, single elimination. And I think it's been more exciting. So I'm I'm with you. And yeah, especially because there's not um, the, the thing of us supporting the team and wanting another go. Yeah. Yeah, that said, I did say before the Atalanta game uh, that if I like, I don't bet very often or haven't bet in a very long time, but I was considering coming out of retirement to put all my money on Atalanta. Very happy I didn't <laughs> do that. And really, if I'd gone for like the parlay slash like a. Uh, uh, like predicting two, I would have been doubly wrong because I definitely yep. had it as Atalanta versus Atletico in the semifinal, and I was not correct. This is why gambling responsibly means not gambling at all. There we That's are. my personal take on gambling. <laughs> <laughs> the responsible thing is to just keep your money and watch the soccer. I, uh. I, will, I, will, amend, I will amend that for me too. Uh, the responsible way to gamble is to gamble if you do not need the money. <laughs> As yes. soon as you find yourself like, I better win this one, that's not good. <laughs> paying rent this month. We're paying rent this yeah. month. <laughs> Keeping those kneecaps. <laughs> Come on, seven. <laughs> well, let's get to today's game, yeah. Taylor. Uh, we're going to talk about today's game, which was Leipzig versus Atletico Madrid. Mm-hmm. We've got some listener questions later in the show as well. But this game finished 2-1 to RB Leipzig with a player named, let me just get this pronunciation mm-hmm. right, Tyler Adams scoring mm-hmm. the winner in the uh, 88th minute. Good I appreciate your joke. Uh, you did say his name with the same level of comfort and familiarity as Jamie Carragher. <laughs> there was that element to it, yep. right? Because this was on CBS All Access, it was not a very American-heavy uh, team in the studio. They're, actually, they're doing a great job. I've really enjoyed it. But we definitely were missing that, that moment mm-hmm. of patriotism that would have happened were this on uh, either Turner or Fox. I think if Alexi Lalas was in the studio, mm-hmm. he would have released 10 bold eagles in the studio yeah. and just let them fly around for the that Christmas is, show. That is the line, though. That I think Because <laughs> like, the one that will forever be in my head is USA-Argentina in the Copa America Centenario when the entire yes. panel, save for Fernando Fiore, picked the United States to advance. And I remember his face being like, really, guys? Like, you really think this? Sure. <laughs> and that did not go that way. So I think there's a line to be walked between like, just over the top, yeah, releasing eagles and uh, just sort of being excited that an American has done something. Yeah, you really want a happy medium, right, where there's enough yeah. attention paid to things of American interest without it taking over. So let's go for that happy medium right here, Taylor, on the Total Soccer Show. Be the change you want to see in the world. I agree. The USA is winning the 2026 World Cup because of Tyler Adams. Too far? I mean, we'll, we'll find out in a few years. <laughs> but yes, we'll let's, instead, in let's maybe instead do our usual approach then, shall yes. we? We'll talk about tactics and how this game played out, and then maybe we'll talk about Tyler Adams in the end, which is to say we will definitely talk about Tyler Adams in the end. Yeah, because if, if people don't know, he did not start this game. He came on in the 72nd minute. Um, let's talk about, yeah, the, the tactical setup of this game, because I would argue this game wasn't that exciting until the 
end when mm-hmm. eagles started flying everywhere. <laughs> um, but that could have been predicted, I think, from the yeah. approach of both of these teams and the way they like to play. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the easier team to describe with Atletico Madrid. What are Atletico Madrid doing in this game? <laughs> That's it. I'm done. Four four two. Not quite a low block necessarily, but happy to drop into a low block if the situation yeah. requires. It's never, it's never as low as no. people say it is, right? It's not really park the bus. It's Mm-mm. about just being like nice tight lines, nice and compact, I think yeah, is all, exactly. always the word with Atletico Madrid. And then moving as a unit, like an army, right? They all march mm-hmm. to the left and march to the right, squeeze you to the, squ- the side, squeeze you to the side, right? It's yeah. about denying you space. Yeah, denying you space and then like also doing their best to de- to deny you that big direct switch so that mm-hmm. you don't then exploit the fact that they're all crowded into one side. Yes. Because you can't do that, it tends to slow the game down and then you overcommit and then they're able to hit you on the counter. That is their usual game plan. That is what we saw today. And I think you're absolutely right. The the spacing and the tightness of the lines is what's fundamentally key. I did enjoy As that, is tradition. We, as is tradition. We did have the piped in crowd noise. But if if for people who are wondering what is that noise, the answer is Diego Simeone. I <laughs> finally could hear him, and he was yelling the whole time. And I mean the whole time. There's that moment late in the game when Kieran Trippier has the throw-in and then does the, the quick like one-two pass that leads to the other player being offside. And you see him instantly turn and be like, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's definitely because Diego Simeone was giving so, him an earful. Is Simeone like um, yelling encouragement and criticism, or is Simeone the type to yell sort of positional instructions i'm really interested in like if the team is so well drilled that he doesn't need to really touch it in terms of who's standing where mm-hmm. or, or or is it more like go on kieran or bad kieran bad kieran i think there's a little bit of the negativity i think there's a little bit of the the positivity as well i think the largest thing it's just instructions and i think okay. that is probably what separates him from say i mean lots of things separate him from people like jose Mourinho. but i think mm-hmm. a big thing there is that i don't think he rides the players in a negative way i don't think there's a lot of berating for mistakes but i think it is like five yards left five yards right like i think it's very yeah. specific instructions because he can see the whole field and they can't there we go all right so now let's talk rb leipzig mm-hmm. because there's a later conversation we're going to have about what position tyler adams was playing and i think it's really instructive to set the table to try and describe what formation RB Leipzig were playing. Because here's my take. It's not really possible. You can't no. describe RB Leipzig's shape in a simple like list of three or four numbers. It is a thing that changes and it's like a lava lamp. It ch- <laughs> a very organized lava lamp. It changes as the ball and the opposition and RB Leipzig move up and down the field. It's very I- fluid is what I'm getting at. I would argue that if you took the time to pause this game as many times as you wanted to, I I really do think you could probably find like 10 different formations depending on when you hit pause. Because <laughs> yeah, there are yeah. moments when I saw 4-2-3-1. There are moments when it was 4-4-2. There are moments when it was 4-2-2-2. There's the 3-3-3-1. Like there were lots of different shapes. And I think that was a big part of what their game plan was. It's why I think Julian Nagelsmann is such a great manager. Because I think the players knew how to execute and had specific yes. points to attack. Well, weirdly, like Atletico Madrid, they're really well drilled, right? But it's about moving your position to the new position as opposed Mm -hmm. to all staying in formation like a Beyonce song or an army. (laughs) Um, Here's my my really basic... I'm really aware that this is probably way more basic than reality, Mm -hmm. but my basic list of their shapes, if you're ready for it, I'm really taking a risk here because I'm aware that this might be very wrong, um, is when RB Leipzig are stepping reasonably high, it's that classic Ralph Ranyuk RB yep. type thing, four two two two. 
Agreed. Right, where it's like wingers who are really tucked in, right, and they're really holding the middle. Um, when they get pushed into a lower block, can I, can I jump in there really quickly, just because I know what you mean, but I want to like clarify it a little bit more. Because when you say wingers tucked like very much inside, to some extent, that makes it sound like almost a vertical column, and. I'm, I don't think that's what you're saying necessarily, but I wanted to add that distinction there because I feel like it's it's not quite an empty bucket is what I would say, but it's a weird like it's not far off right? or something. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. Is, yeah okay, cool. a, if you look at the two strikers, the two wingers and the two midfielders, it's mm-hmm. a hexagon. Yeah. There we go. All okay, right. cool, cool. So 4-2-2-2 two, 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 when they're mm-hmm. defending high, when they get pushed back, it turns into a sort of 5-1-3-1 or 5-4-1 yeah. with Yusuf Paulson at the top. When they have the ball and they're attacking, it's... A three 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 one, but those two middle bands of three are very uh, sorry. The two highest bands of three, the three attackers mm. and the three midfielders, are very movable in terms of who goes wide and who doesn't. And the big thing I would have everybody know about RB Leipzig is they only have width on the side they're attacking down or the side they're concentrated on. Right. Yep. So if they're going down the left, Angelino, the left back, will get really high and wide. If they're going down the right then uh, Lema or Sabitzer or somebody will eventually pull out wide right. But if they're going down the left, then nobody pulls wide right on the right. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, exemplified by the winning goal, in which Tyler Adams, yeah. the like, like nominal right back, right wing back, what have you, is right pretty much dead center of the field. We'll, we'll get into it later. Yeah. We'll get into it later, yeah. Um, so that I mean, so that's my take on the the tactics of this game. It's like two teams that wanted to squeeze laterally, mm-hmm. and it's two teams that are very good at winning second balls. Um, so and that led to just a lot, just a lot of like good tackling, good competitive mm-hmm. stuff in the middle of the field, and not too many attacking threats going on, not with any consistency. I would agree. I I, I did think, uh, especially in the first half. Uh, we, I, had, I had said previously that like in other conversations I've had, the idea was that Leipzig would want to get ahead very early. They do sort of get very aggressive very early on. But with that said, I did feel like though it was pretty balanced, Leipzig seemed to have more of a plan for how to deal with Atletico's defense, which is a very, very difficult thing to deal with. And I, I, I mean to say that I think they had adjusted what they were doing or sort of game planned for Atleti. And I feel like Atleti were just doing what Atletico do and daring Leipzig to try to find a way through. So what do you mean when you, you say Leipzig had game planned for mm-hmm. Atleti? So I th- like defense. the the biggest thing that stood out to me is and not even to say that, like they never do this or something just that there were th- certain things that I felt like were anything that felt like they were rolling the dice but in a very specific way of rolling the dice almost as they knew the result felt like they were planning for Atleti and a big thing would be regularly committing like up to eight outfield players within twenty five thirty yards of goal they always had numbers forward and I think that was because they backed themselves to deal with Atletico's pace or relative lack thereof but I think it was also because they were focused on trying to maintain possession when they did get into that attacking third into Atletico's half they weren't trying to rush it I think that's a thing that a lot of teams do is oh there is an opening let's rush into that as quickly as we can because Atleti never give openings instead it felt like Leipzig weren't trying to hope for that possibility they were trying to probe and pass and move the ball and see if if they committed enough numbers and were patient enough if they could find those pockets of space yeah and two things i'd say to that one is that i think that one of those things is a result of that thing of not having a wide player on the far side Mm -hmm. if you have that what would have been the wide player come central um then you just have way more numbers in the middle right so Mm -hmm. you have passing options you have numbers and even if you do lose the ball you've got a good chance of winning it back that's part of the rb thing as well right is if you if you've got a lot of numbers centrally if it gets turned over 
you'll probably um, you'll probably win it back. But it's also I think this is I actually read the the John Muller uh, newsletter this mm. morning, right? And I was uh, really impressed by it. He was talking about the essentially the evolution of RB Leipzig. They're no longer like a team that just pushes it forward and then wins a second ball. They are becoming a bit more of a possession team when they have the ball. I think you're 100 percent right. That was really evident today. And they were not coughing the ball up easily, even going up against that fearsome Atletico uh, Madrid defense. And and I would again add like because I agree with you entirely, but if people are confused, because I don't know if they even had the dominant possession statistics in this one, uh, did Leipzig? But I know what you mean when you say like they're more interested in possession when they have the ball. It's not as though they are tiki taka Barca who are going to have seventy percent possession, but no. it's more about they don't have that sort of blunt approach. Let's go at them, and then we'll win the ball back if we lose it, and then we'll win it back again, and maybe we'll be in an opportune position. Yeah, yeah. It is. Like, moving that ball and finding that space. And I also think, weirdly, it's a little bit like Cortez burning the boats. It's like if you put somebody standing out on the far touchline, you're always going to have that outlet option, which means you will always play there. But if that's not what your offense is built around, it's going to break down immediately because you're not going to have the numbers around them. You're going to have to move everybody over. It slows down. To some extent, that's what Atletico want you to do. So if you don't put that person there, you don't have that outlet. It makes you sort of double down on the approach of keep number central and find a way through. Okay, so before we go too long, Taylor, because we've also sure. got like, listener questions to get to, shall we start talking about the goals? Should we get sure. to the goals in this game? Starts in the second half, 50th minute, with a Danny Olmo header. And you were a big fan of this goal. I, I remember you either texted me or you tweeted that you wanted to rewatch this many times. So mm-hmm. what was going on in this goal that had you so fascinated with this Danny Olmo header? Well, I didn't even realize until I think Henry Bushnell put out the clip. I'm sure many people, other people have, but I saw it from Henry, that it was, it, it was an 18 pass or maybe even more than that sequence. Mm, and I think yeah. anytime there is that level of buildup to a goal, it's always more fun to watch to go back and see just how much movement there was. But it's that, it's also that, like, and I, we talked about this a little bit off air, so I welcome your explanation for this because I think I, I'm going to go the long way around of explaining a fairly simple concept. But what I noticed was that it was a lot of As is tradition. As is tradition, of course. Um, I noticed a lot of movement, but specific movement. It wasn't sort of everybody just running and trying to f- find openings and trying to get open and that, that old idea of like work, 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 you should never not be running. Instead, it was like little bits of movement, but then it was specific darting runs, but it wasn't everybody running into the same space. It was one person making a run, and when that one was complete, there was another run in, and then there was another run, and it was all yeah. these sort of patterns that you could see, and it was exemplified to me by how crisp that passing was, that it wasn't a lot of putting the foot on the ball and looking around. It seemed as though players knew the rotations and knew where their teammates were going to be, so they knew where to move the ball quickly. Yeah, I mean, you're describing positional play, basically, right? Which isn't really how I would describe RB Leipzig at all, because they don't put that premium premium on possession. Mm -hmm. Uh, But these are elements of positional play, which is about um, the whole team being on the same page, about who moves where and what effect that has and how we can exploit that. And I agree with you. That is absolutely what happened on this goal. So to diagram it a little bit, um, we don't want to do the whole 18 passes, right? But to me, it gets really dangerous when the left centre-back, Holstenberg, starts dribbling at the Atletico Madrid defence, right? Mm -hmm. Um, He dribbles past a player, pops it into the feet of Yusuf Poulsen, who I think holds it up really, really well. I have Poulsen is the most important part of this goal. He is, right? Yeah, because it it all bounces off him, right? And he knocks it back to Campbell. Uh, Campbell squares it to Lehmer. This is all at the top of the box. And then Lehmer plays it out wide to Sabitzer, who eventually crosses it for Olmo, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, the really important part is the movement here um, of uh, Sabitzer. He's doing that thing we talked about where he's staying 
quite tucked in for someone who's supposed to be providing width. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like until the ball crosses the Rubicon of halfway, uh, the vertical halfway line, which doesn't exist, but you can imagine it in your I mind. I know what you mean. Yeah, I like um, it. And it and it gets to Kamplin, it gets to Limer, and it goes over that Rubicon to the right side. Suddenly, you then see Sabitzer just start taking a few quick little steps to provide some width, right? And the crucial part of this is Lodi, the uh, Atletico left back. He has like checked Sabitzer a couple of times, a couple of times, a couple of times, but he doesn't check him like between the moment when that ball crosses the vertical halfway line. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, Sabitzer is able to provide himself with a lot of space to cross, right? Because Lodi has stayed as part of the compact back four. Sabitzer has tiptoed out wide. But like you said, they're such small, specific, tiny movements that only really Leipzig know are happening. Uh, that that's how Sabitzer creates the space for the cross. Yeah, because because to, to the point of like the small, specific movement, if Sabitzer is just like, oh, I got to get wide and drifts wide, Atletico are going to be aware of that. They're going to kind of position yeah. somebody maybe a couple yards over, not all the way over, but that that is now dealt with effectively. And Almost, I want to say, like, a big part of this game plan for Leipzig was sort of the illusion of comfort that, like, Sabitzer drifts inside, and then it's like, oh, okay, he's central, they've got numbers in the middle, we'll clog that. And then he drifts back out wide, and they haven't really paid attention to it. Not even wide, but drifts, like, <laughs> like a couple yeah. yards wider. He's just outside the penalty area, exactly. right? Yeah. He's not wide, wide, wide. But also, mm. even though... Um, he has space to cross because of Atletico's compactness, because he's tiptoed out there, because uh, Lodi didn't quite know exactly what the movements were going to be. It's actually a really dangerous crossing position, right? Because it's so close to goal. It's so close to the area. And I think that's the key to this goal is that Sabitzer can just whip it in and Olmo can hit it. Like it's not, you know, the cross doesn't take long, right? So it all happens very quickly. I think that's part of the reason it beats Oblak. Yeah. And then the, the other big thing to me is you talked earlier about how RB Leipzig kind of had a lot of numbers in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Olmo is trailing Paulson, right? So a lot yes. of Atletico defenders are looking at Yusuf Paulson, who's taking them deep, and obviously Savage literally guy. follows him. Yep. Yeah, so it's, he's a, he's the threat, right? But that leaves Olmo like can just almost like travel in Paulson's wake <laughs> and meet that header and make it one nil to Atlet- to uh, RB Leipzig. Yeah, and and connecting to the second goal, which we're not going to get quite to yet, but Richard Farley on Twitter said at least about the second goal that it felt like a targeted thing Leipzig were doing was making those aggressive runs to make that defensive line drop, and then there's that space for that secondary runner. And I do think that's what Paulson is doing here. Yeah. He makes a really aggressive run to get into the six-yard box, but does then take a bunch of defenders with him, pull yes. people out of the space where that pass goes. And I do think that was a thing they were specifically trying to do, is get Atleti to drop so there's an extra couple yards of space, and then you run into that and hit that ball first time, and you see what happens. So I've only just realized that, yeah, the Olmo goal and the Adams goal have mm-hmm. that in common, just like uh, the Olmo one's on like a smaller scale and the Adams one is on a bigger scale. But it's the same thing, right? Where the defense has been forced deep and then you exploit the space just in front of them. Yes. I love oh, that goal. Lovely. I love both goals, but this well, one before, especially. Before we get to talk about that Tyler Adams goal, let's talk about Jao Felix because sure. he comes off the bench. He plays central midfield, which is a real surprise to me. I thought he would go up front and Llorente would drop into central midfield. But Jao Felix plays center midfield and I've got to say that the moment he wins the penalty kick, which he then scores, it was kind of reminiscent of Neymar versus Atalanta. It was just one man making it happen with some like quick movement and beating people and quick one twos from uh, from a deep position. Yeah, and, and it happened. He comes on, and then in the 62nd minute is when Lodi gets the Lodi Lodi gets the yellow card for diving. <laughs> I think uh, Lodi was... is where they make the Zinfandel. 
Exactly, yeah. That's why, that's why I think it's – or is sung about by CCR. But either way, yes. Okay, Lodi then. Uh, first of all, an incredible spot by the official who is in the exact right position to see that it's a dive because it was a very good dive. Yeah. But it's the same basic thing. It's Shao Felix gets the ball, drives at Leipzig. Uh, there's a little bit of like, bad positioning or misplays, but it is him sort of going at defenders, making them uncomfortable, and that opens up space for other people. Here it doesn't actually end in a penalty, but eight minutes later it does. So is this Diego Simeone being too brave too late? Because at the time it felt like, oh, he's got this just right. He was, you know, a bit more defensive with having the Herrera Coke central midfield. And now he's now they've gone one nil down. He's put this creative um, Felix in there and he's really, really made something happen. Or in hindsight, did Simeone just like should maybe should have done this sooner or maybe should have found a place for Felix in the starting eleven? Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, though they lost, and I know what you mean, like, this is still the Atletico team that, lest we forget, eliminated Liverpool. Like, their game plan works yeah. until it doesn't, and I think, with that in mind, it makes a lot of sense to me to, once you're 1-0 down, we're going to change it up, and against slightly tired legs, and I do think that's a big part of how this goal happens, we're going to bring on a young, enthusiastic runner who has a point to prove, and we'll yeah. see what happens. And he, I mean, he destroys Sabitzer with his yep. first touch, right? So I think Sabitzer's maybe tired, but he overruns, and Felix so. just yeah. just dances past him. And then, I think it's a, I don't know who he plays it with, I think it's Diego Costa he plays the 1-2 with. Oh, it's leaves, Diego Costa, because I have, I have a point on that one. <laughs> he leaves Campo in the dust with that 1-2, right? Uh-huh. And then, he looks like um, he's playing at twice the speed that Klosterman is when Klosterman quite clumsily slide tackles him in the mm. box and, and brings Jao Felix down. I want to say, so, Jao Felix definitely benefiting from his appearance at the MLS All-Star Skills Challenge. That was it. That's what it was. That's yeah. what did it. And he scores in the All-Star game too, I do believe. So it's those two things. It's why he is where he is right now, for sure. <laughs> uh, a couple he, things. He owes it all to Disney. I, I think he definitely does, and I think he would agree. Uh, a couple of things here, before we even talk about the penalty, if we even want to talk about how it's taken. Um, there are I, honestly, of, I would say no because we have so much to get to. I am good with that. Then, then the things I want to point out: number one is that this is an example of the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do when you are pressing defensively. Is that you're right? It's uh, Sabitzer gets beat. I do think it's because he's slow, but also or like fatigued, but also because Jao Felix is very good. But then what happens is Limer is, is following him, but sees Campbell, and both of them sort of back off each other a little bit because both of them think the other one's going to tackle, and that you have to have the decisive action because otherwise the ball is played into the. Diego Costa, and then neither one of them is really alive to what Jao Felix is doing, which was continuing his run. So I think that's a big part of why he's wide open. But I do think, I want to get your theory on this. It is genuinely a theory. I welcome your thoughts. We know that Diego Costa is a master of the dark arts, and I do think there's a little bit of that in this goal. Because moments before this... He comes through, he kicks out on Opamakano. He knows exactly what he's doing. I think he's been very frustrated by how good Opamakano has been. He was magnificent, by the way. He really was. was. So good stepping to win things. He was, you know, Atletico a threat on set pieces. He was heading everything away. And then dribbling out of the back and finding passes, he was magnificent as well. Quick side note from me there. No, that's, that's, I appreciate it. But the commentators at the time said, like, oh, that's frustration. You know, he's been so contained. And maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here, or too much credit, I should say. But, I think that's Diego Costa doing Diego Costa things, that he knows if you kick a person and get really physical and really annoy them, there's a chance they're going to be annoyed. And Opamakano so aggressively steps to him when he gets this ball from Jao Felix and leaves the space where the return pass goes, that I did wonder if maybe that kick out has Opamakano thinking, oh, I'm going to get you this time. I'm going to get you back for that. I, the, o- the only argument against that is that that's just how Opamakano plays all the time. He is Fair. really aggressive about stepping out to win things. And he is, like, 
I'm putting a number on it, but like 90% successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? So I, I would argue that even if Costa is playing head games, I think that is just Upamecano's game. Fair. Okay. Yeah. So, so it right. can be Diego Costa is playing head games and they maybe work, but more likely is that Upamecano just did Upamecano things and it yeah. didn't quite work this time. All right, Tyler. Fascinating as all this is, and mm-hmm. Felix scores the penalty in the 71st minute, yep. none of it is as interesting as Tyler Adams coming off the bench in the 72nd minute. Nope. It's That's not. It. It's, it's not. Well, it's just him coming off the bench, right? That's all we're going to talk about is the way he comes on the field. Yeah, let's diagram his entrance to the field. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's. So let's talk about uh, Tyler Adams sure. uh, comes on in the seventy-second minute. Um, he replaces Lamer, and again, as we as we talked about earlier, we're not going to define his position. Like Tyler Adams played right back. Tyler Adams played defensive midfield. Tyler Adams played this or that because that sort of right side of a central midfield trio that sometimes has to fill in at right back in the back five and sometimes provides width if Sabitzer isn't providing width is the best way I can think to describe it. And that that series of positions and positionings and roles does not have a name. Yeah, no, it, it does not. And I think we're wise then to sort of avoid it to the extent possible yes. because playing in that vague area it's not just then like oh he's in that vague area that means he's a right back and that's the conversation done and dusted because yeah. there's no way that that's the instruction he's getting he's not being told go play right back he's being told go do these 800 things would be yeah. i guess and like to get to give a quick diagram of it when leipzig are deep and they have a back five adams is the right back when they're a bit higher he shifts into like the right side of central midfield um, and then it also just depends on other people's roles right like if if Sabitzer is providing width or if Schick, who later comes on, is providing width, then Adams can tuck in when they go forward. If they happen to not be, because it's just situational, then it's Tyler Adams' job to be the one that supplies width if they're not. So that's such a complicated position or complicated role with so many um, instructions within hierarchies of instructions that you can't put a name on it. And I'm just impressed that Tyler Adams has learned that role and is able to perform it because I would forget half the things I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, like, not to say that other teams, first of all, I think you could handle it better than most, my friend. But yes, I know what you mean. Uh, and I think with that in mind that, like, it's easy to think of athletes as, as you know, like, oh, they're just jocks who, like, and special professional footballers who, like, don't go to high school because they're already professionals at that point. Like, it's easy to think of them as just like, oh, yeah, they're just, like, running around kicking a ball. But you watch Leipzig, and you're absolutely right. Like, it it really must require like the same amount of study as like a college course or an entire college four years crammed yeah. into one preseason to figure all this stuff out and to internalize it and to know how to play in any given moment. So I, the big thing I would say as well is let's not really use Tyler Adams' uh, role or position at Leipzig mm-hmm. um, as a stick with which to beat Greg Berhalter because if anything, the original sort of hybrid right-back centre midfield role that Berhalter was going to ask Adams to play but really never got around to it because he was injured so much, it's not that dissimilar to the complicated version of what he's being asked to do um, at RB Leipzig right now. Um, so, um, just a slight soapbox moment yeah. from me there. <laughs> but shall we, I'm fine with it. Shall we talk about the Tyler Adams goal? 88, I we should. 88th minute. Um, let's start with their headline that nobody wanted to hear from me or you. Mm-hmm. This is yeah, actually... and then you tweeted it and tagged it as me, as though I had written it. It was clearly Gerald <laughs> who wrote it and not me at the, all. One of the golden rules of Total Soccer Show is we never fake each other's name on Twitter, right? So uh, okay. I'm, I'm not having that. This should be a savage own goal, right? Tyler Adams' shot is going a little bit wide and it deflects mm-hmm. off of Savage. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because the score sheet says Adams 88 apostrophe. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's not like it could have been a tap in. It could have been a screamer. If it was a 40 yard screamer, it probably is a little bit, maybe more. But generally speaking, a goal is a goal and that he is in the right position to capitalize. Yes. And that will be the narrative. Even if it does get changed to an own goal, he is still in the position and has held it enough, but still managed to close the ground to get in the exact right spot to settle and have a shot. And Eventually, it finds the back of the net, even if it's not necessarily on frame. But I think Tyler Adams scored a goal is what's going to stand out the most. So let's talk briefly about this goal. I'm aware we're we're actually going quite long here, Tyler, and we've got uh, questions to get to. But there are two things worth highlighting in this goal that are actually not Tyler Adams related. It's Sabitzer's clever outside of the football that like splits um, (laughs) splits Kieran Trippier's world in half um, and sends Angelino away down the left. And then Angelino doing that thing that we talked about with the Olmo goal where Atletico were backing off and backing off and backing off. And Angelino very cleverly, instead of just floating it into the area and letting Atletico's guys head it away, um, cuts it back to Tyler Adams, who has, I want to say, about 12 to 15 yards of space to shoot. Yeah, and I think it is because of that ball from Sabitzer, which uh, there's a massive, there's like four different changes of possession in, in short order in the middle of the field. And it almost felt like Sabitzer just came through and was like, fine, I'll do it myself and just yeah. hit it outside of the foot perfectly into yeah. Angelino. Because it was a scramble in yeah. the field, right? Until Sabitzer just had that moment of vision and magic. And because, I think it is because of that scramble that then when that ball is played into Angelino and now he is in a very good, strong position, Atletico drops so fast because they need to be able to make sure that they've got that covered. But Angelino, to his credit, and maybe Pep Guardiola is watching, then does that cutback, doesn't try to force it, doesn't try to get to the end line, doesn't try to go himself, but waits and then pulls it back to a wide-open trailing runner, which, again, feels very designed, but still doesn't take anything away from the fact that it's great play from Angelino and Sabitzer as well. Um, so let's talk about the Adams finish just for a second. It is, I think, I really do think it is going a little bit wide. I don't want to focus on that. Mm. I do really like Tyler Adams' first touch. It was like textbook, just set yourself up and then shoot, mm-hmm. right? Because I think he recognized, I've got loads of space here. I don't need to rush it with a first-time shot. I'm not Pasalic. Um, but also, I've got just the right amount of time for a simple control and finish. And he did, he executed that. Apart from it being slightly wide, he executed that perfectly. Which, which I will say, like, I, I got in trouble in my coaching course. I think I've told this story before for saying, like, oh, unlucky when a player missed the target and the other person, person who was evaluating was like, yeah, that's not unlucky. He didn't do it right. And I, Therefore, I agree with you about 95% of the way. I think his first touch is fine. I think they have been drilled in the past week that if you have an opportunity to shoot, you take that shooting opportunity. And I think he does just rush it a tiny bit because I think he feels the defender's closing and wants to make sure he gets that opportunity off. One defender kind of throws his body at him, right? I'm not sure who it is. Uh, But that is what matters because then it deflects and goes in and leads to my favorite joke I've seen. It's the top comment on Reddit in response to this goal, which is, Daryl, that Keppa would have saved it because he would not have dived. <laughs> oh, the irony. Have dove? I never know. I never know which one it should be, we but either on, way. We settled on Divend, I believe. I almost said it. <laughs> I so, really did almost say Divend. This is a moment of celebration for us as American fans, right? That we're yeah. having a generation of players who mm-hmm. Tyler Adams uh, is part of the generation. He is playing in the quarterfinals of a Champions League game, coming off the bench and scoring the winning goal in the Champions League quarterfinals. It probably means he's going to play in the semifinal. We don't know if he'll yeah. start, but he's kind of got a good case. for it. Now he's had this big impact in this game. Yeah, I, I doubt he ends up starting and I'll be fine with that because I think it's not as though anybody in the Leipzig midfield didn't do their job necessarily particularly well. I think he'll probably just fits in where he fits in right now. But in another game next season, maybe he starts that game. So either way, I'm okay with it because I, I agree with you. I think he gets minutes next game. 
And that will make him the first American since DeMarcus Beasley to play in a Champions League semi-final, right? DMB, uh, you, you took a guess and I did the confirmatory research that DeMarcus Beasley played for PSV Champions League semi-final 2005, which used to feel somewhat recent. Now it's 15 years ago. Yeah, it's troubling. I had the same thought. I was like, oh, no, that's not recent because well, we've been doing the show for more than 10 years. It'd be troubling if we weren't having an American play in the semi-final next week. It's less troubling with that happening, right? That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> So there's something to look forward to. I believe they're playing PSG. Am I correct that it's bracketed mm-hmm. in that way? Um, okay. Anything else to say on this game, Taylor, before we get to the six listener questions we have in the bank here? Just that it was a very cool experience to have an American on the field in a quarterfinal and then to score that goal. Yeah. I mean, I know I got a lot of stick. I think I got ratioed on Twitter for that, for that tweet, <laughs> which is fine. It was mostly friendly. It was mostly friendly yeah. responses. Oh, and, and yeah. it's fine. But, uh, like, I don't want that, like... I think it's always important to have the factual conversation, but not let that take away from the overarching narrative, which is that Tyler Adams comes in and has a massive impact in a Champions League quarterfinal and his team advanced because of it. Like, it doesn't matter whether or not it was on frame. It still hit the back of the net because yeah. of his work, and I am good with it. So, yeah, his performance outside of the goal was mm-hmm. pretty, like, basic but solid, yeah. right? It was a lot of uh, retaining possession, a couple of winning balls, uh, one foul that could have gone that could have gone either way. One big moment that I'm going to assume you didn't notice because you haven't said anything about it, but right towards the end of the game, when RB Leipzig are 2-1 up, and, you know, minutes are running out, I think it's in added time, there's a bit of a scuffle on the sideline with Hadara, mm-hmm. Do you oh, I noticed moment? it, yeah. You mm-hmm. did notice it, yeah. And yep. it was Tyler Adams who, when it all dies down, but I think Hadara still wants to do a bit of drawing with someone. Tyler Adams is the one to sort of put an arm around him, pull him away, do the uh, the um, index finger tap to the temple, which is like think, concentrate, focus. And once again, I think we see the leadership of Tyler Adams. I'm really enjoying seeing that leadership um, in a Champions League quarterfinal after he just scored the winner. Agree, and would only add... Release the also- Eagles! I'm pretty sure we got a finger point to the scoreboard as well, which is I'm I'm pretty sure one of the things he was saying is let that like let us win and that will speak more because that was definitely Atletico, Atletico trying to get somebody sent off or cause a problem or yeah. create something out of nothing and I think yeah it's Adams being wise and calm to help de-escalate the situation. Okay, before we get to listener questions, mm-hmm. we are going to play for our listeners an Indochino ad. It's going to be dynamically inserted. And oh boy. if it's the one that was played yesterday, it's going to be Paul Tenorio talking about his difficulties buying clothes. So thank you to Indochino and we think Paul Tenorio. We're still not sure. We did not listen to the ad in between I hope uh, the it was. time that Daryl stopped. I hope it was. I really I hope, hope it was, was Paul too. Tenorio. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we get to some listener questions, Taylor? I suppose um, we should. First one comes from Chris Decker. Chris Decker says, thanks to your show and a COVIDly baseball-free summer, which is a very nice phrase, I started watching the Premier League and have decided to give the 2021 season a full go. Which non-Big Six club would you recommend for a starter fan? So you would think, Taylor, mm. that the obvious answer is Wolves because they're the best. Um, but Chris has added some potential qualifiers. I think uh, if they were the best, then they wouldn't be on the list because they'd be top six, <laughs> so there you go. That's uh, Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Chris says potential qualifiers, that the ownership isn't cringeworthy, that there's a cool stadium name, a fun style of play, which actually might detract from Wolves, a quality manager, a player or two worth rooting for, the ability to stay in the Premier League for more than a single season, 
Team Colors That Aren't Orange, which feels like a shot at Wolves, but I'm not sure. Um, and since I'm American, a solid team or fan base nickname like Blades. He likes Blades, but he doesn't like Seagulls. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Taylor, have you got any recommendations for Chris Decker? I do. I would say, though, first off, uh, in terms of finding an owner that is good, yeah. tough task when it comes to I, the Premier League. I feel exactly the same way. Every yep. ownership group you might have some questions about, maybe outside uh-huh. the big six. So maybe we just ignore that one. Well, I think I mostly went for, like, isn't actively accused of human rights atrocities. Oh, That's okay. a big thing. <laughs> or under investigation for some sort of scandal. Even then, I think you're getting about half the ownership group. Um, with that said, there are two nominees for me. Uh, okay. One of them is Leeds United. One of yep. them is Southampton. Okay, my two nominees were Leeds United and Sheffield mm-hmm. United. All right. Um, uh, is that because of the Blades? It's because of the Blades. It's because the stadium name is Bramall Lane. It's because Chris Wilder has an interesting tactical approach. We talked about mm-hmm. the wide overloads and the overlapping fullbacks, uh, overlapping centre-backs and all that. But also, Chris Wilder's a Sheffield United fan who took this job and dragged them up the leagues and now they're finishing top half of the Premier League. So mm-hmm. it kind of checks all the boxes. They are owned by a Saudi prince who is sort of the uh, de facto head of the whole thing. But yeah. it's not the Saudi prince who um, is the, you know, the, the murderous butcher. So um, it's, I don't know much about this Saudi prince, but I know he's not MBS. I mean, they are numerous. I'll yeah. say that much. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I think that's a, a safe shout because yeah, they do play exciting football because you do have Chris Wilder there, who seems like he has the backing and will be for around for a while. Oh, for sure. You do always want to avoid that team that is exciting right now, but a year or two from now, if they yeah. get relegated or lose that one player, they're in a lot of trouble. And it looks like they're not losing that one player, right? They might even, based on yesterday's transfer rumors, be gaining an American in Anthony Robinson. But quick update on that. Fulham are apparently rumoured to have put in a bid as well. I think a few like bottom half or, you know, smaller Premier League clubs have noticed that Anthony Robinson can be had for very cheap right now. Yep. Um, So (laughs) that story is going to keep on going. But I think Sheffield United is a good shout. Uh, Since we both had leads, I'll just very quickly go to Southampton just to say, I mean, you've got the Saints. I think that's that's a good one. You've got St. Mary's. It connects. Uh, But then you've got Ralph Hasenhutl, who we've talked about many times on this show. He's got them playing more attacking soccer, more exciting soccer. I think they will continue to improve that and score more goals next season. Probably wins and gives it home. It's Red Bull flavored soccer. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're probably going to spend a little bit of money because I think they will have money to spend. Uh, so I, I do think that they will be exciting and also not a team that you're going to be accused of being a bandwagon fan yeah. for supporting. And then they do have the kind of history, relatively recent history, of bringing in managers who are exciting and bringing in interesting ideas, especially when it comes to the attacking side of the game. So I think that's a good shout. Yeah, and let, then, me, yeah. let me also add that, um, uh-huh. so Chris had mentioned that he wanted... Uh, one or two players worth rooting for, right? I would argue that for Sheffield United, if you get Anthony Robinson, then as an American, you have that. But outside of that, Sheffield United don't really have like a big, big name for you to get all excited about. It's a very Mm. sort of team-specific kind of game. Senderberger. Yeah, but it's not quite there, is it, right? But with Southampton, I think Mm -hmm. you do have that. You have Danny Ings is, you know, like premium Jamie Vardy. Danny Ings is worth getting excited about. Nathan Redmond is worth getting excited about. So I think Southampton do have a, a bit of that about them. Yeah, and then you never know, like, it, you could be rooting for a player signed from some random league for, like, $5 million, and 10 years later, he wins the Ballon d'Or. That seems to be the way it goes for a lot of the players they're bringing in. Yeah. They tend to move on to uh, very successful other positions. All right, so I'm willing to say Southampton over Sheffield United for Chris Decker. Okay. Um, but how, let's, let, why don't you tell me the case for Leeds United? 
Uh, owner is Andrea Redvizani. Yes. Uh, owner of Eleven Sports, right? So he's I saw nothing mogul. too nefarious. Yeah. Again, you know, it's a scale. The only uh, the only other thing is he owns ninety percent. And 10% is owned by apparently the same group that owns the San Francisco 49ers. I saw that as well. So I don't know with um, Chris's team colors that aren't orange. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we looked into this, right? The San Francisco Giants wear orange. So I want to make sure that there isn't, there isn't like an anti-San Francisco thing that Chris is going for that would be uh, that would prove the, the 10% ownership to overrule any Leeds United interest. My money remains that it's tough to wear an orange jersey in public. <laughs> like, like, oh, it's just that. Of, it's just a fashion thing. In terms of like respectability of wearing, I had this conversation once with a buddy of mine about what sport has the most accept, like socially acceptable jerseys to wear in public, and then going down the order of what ends up being the least. Uh, I think soccer is pretty high up there, but yeah, a bright orange jersey is tough to pull off. I see. I see. Also, baseball is last on the list of fashionable things, right? I think we went with hockey because they're just yeah. always enormous. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's and true. A, and a like a tie at the throat is difficult. Like, <laughs> whatever that thing is, whatever it's called, not lace, but you know what I mean. All right, tell me more about Leeds and why Chris should sure. support them. I mean, I think a big thing is Marcelo Bielsa. We yes. know it's going to be fun no matter yes. what. If it goes poorly, it's still going to be entertaining and interesting. I don't think it will go poorly. I think it will go fine. I don't think they're going to make like uh, top ten, like top five, top six, anything like that. Maybe top ten. You never know. But I think it will be fun to watch them. I think they've got interesting players. I'd like to hear you talk more about Helder Costa if you have thoughts on him. But Jack Harrison is another one, former NYCFC. He's on loan from Man City. He will continue to be on loan for his third straight season. So you've got the semi-American connection there. Ellen Road, which was built in 1897, is a uh, a decent, a decent a name, name and it's a, a decently old stadium. stadium. Yeah, What's that? I mean, the big thing with supporting Leeds is it has this big history, right? And mm-hmm. Elland Road is part of that. It's like a classic stadium name in England and a classic big stadium. Yeah, and it goes back. To, I think we talked about this before. It theoretically goes back to War of the Roses, which then means that if uh, Chris chooses Leeds United, I will no longer like Chris. It's <laughs> fundamental to this equation. Two other interesting things, I think, with, um, with Leeds. Helder Costa, like, fun, dribbly, wide guy, mm-hmm. right? Not good enough for Wolves, good enough for Leeds. There um, um, I think the really interesting thing with uh, Leeds in the, in the Premier League will be watching Pablo Hernandez. So Pablo Hernandez is 35, I want to say. Um, Spanish playmaker type guy. And a lot of what they did in the championship revolved around Pablo Hernandez. I will be fascinated to see if they try the same thing in the Premier League with a 35-year-old Spanish playmaker. Let's do it. I like it. I think if anyone can make it work, Bielsa can make it work. I, I, I have faith. So I yeah. would say, yeah, Leeds or Southampton. Are we good with that? Yeah, but we, have we got to choose one or should we leave that to Chris? We leave it to Chris. I think we can give him two. Because I think Leeds are the Whites or the Peacocks is what I think I saw. And yeah. I don't know if, if you're not in on Seagulls, you're probably not in on Peacocks. No one ever calls them by their nickname, right? It's just Leeds or United. They're one of those teams that's big enough to just be called United. You know what I mean? And if Man United are around, then everyone knows who you're referring to. No, they if, have a nickname. If we are going on nickname, I think it's Saints. It's Leeds. No, it's... Dirty Leeds. How dare you? If we are going on nickname, I'm going to recommend Saints, Southampton to Chris Decker yeah. and the mm-hmm. Hoot, Ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Next sure. question comes from Kenneth Sidon. Kenneth Sidon wants to know if you could put a certain manager or a certain player on a club for pure entertainment purposes, what would you do? Who would All they right. be? I have I have two answers to this. One is a player, one is a manager. Yeah. 
I didn't actually approach this from my usual way of what would be the most fun in terms of what makes the team better and they're going to score a bunch of goals. I want Lionel Messi at Liverpool because I think <gasps> that would be fascinating to see what Jurgen Klopp does with that. Because you can't not play Lionel Messi, but he really doesn't fit with what they're doing. So how do you blend those two to make it work is something that would be really, really interesting to so see. So he would play either the Mohamed Salah role and actually uh-huh. would be kind of perfect for it, right? Because he's the same right-sided, left-footed can dribble at you and cause loads of trouble. I'm assuming Messi could pretty easily learn the defensive side of it, where you have to block the balls out to the fullbacks. But he could also play the Roberto Firmino role, where you're a number nine that drops into, like, you know, comes deeper and drops into midfield and receives the ball there. So I actually think he'd fit beautifully at Liverpool. I think that you are being very generous to him when it comes with, to his defensive efforts. <laughs> That is my response to what you just said. But there is a weird thing where he's like carved out a role for himself at Barcelona that I don't think is helpful where he's absolved of defensive responsibility in some ways. I think if you agree to play for a club team, then you agree to the whole system, right? Oh, no, this isn't an agreement. He's just there now. He just just is. He exists at Liverpool and it's like, all right, what do we do? So, oh, I've never seen Klopp have like an issue with a player before. So just for that aspect of it, of how mm. does Klopp handle a Messi who doesn't want to do things, if that's what we're saying that this is going to be like, that would be fascinating. I mean, and it wouldn't necessarily be that because you're right. Maybe he does change it up a little bit. He embraces the system. And then you have Liverpool destroying everyone even more. Yeah. And that makes them, I guess, more entertaining to watch because they're going to win every game 9-0 instead of 4-0. <laughs> so, OK, I'd be on board with watching that anyway. Whether Messi was on board with the system or not, it's entertaining <laughs> both ways, right? Um, yep. I went with either Cristiano Ronaldo to Barcelona or Leo Messi to Juventus. Because we are living in the last gasp of an era where these two guys could be on the same team. (laughs) We are. I'm going to assume that, ah, man, I don't know which one of those is better. I don't know which one of those works better because both of them have massive problems, but also the potential for massive goals. Whichever team Serginho Dest joins, that's the one where I want it to happen because I want (laughs) Dest involved in all this. Do you have a guess as to which one would work better? My my hunch is Messi to Juve would be more successful overall. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely there would be a problem with Real Madrid mm-hmm. legend Cristiano Ronaldo joining Barcelona. Yeah. Um, there would be less of a problem with late career Lionel Messi going and joining Cristiano Ronaldo at what is essentially neutral territory in terms of the El Clasico <laughs> rivalry, right, at Juventus. Yep. Yeah. Hey, this is Daryl here cutting in with a quick um, addendum. When we had this conversation, I was not aware there is a rumour out there that Juventus have offered Cristiano Ronaldo to Barcelona. Like, this might actually be somewhere in the realm of reality. And from what I understand, based on some quotes from uh, Guillaume Balaguer, really good journalist who knows what's what, it's essentially because Juventus might want Ronaldo's salary off of their books and it doesn't mean it's going to happen and I'm not sure Barcelona are in a position to pay Ronaldo's gigantic salary any more than Juventus are but just I wanted to acknowledge since we'd had this conversation that there is a weird rumor out there that Ronaldo is being shopped around by Juventus and one of the potential destinations is Barcelona. Uh, my manager I had uh, is definitely recency bias here, but Julian Nagelsmann going to Tottenham is just a genuine thing that I think would be really fascinating mm. because it seems like they'd get back to more of the attacking, exciting play that we saw from Pochettino that I think Tottenham fans appreciated. But also, Nagelsmann choosing to go to Leipzig instead of, say, Bayern Munich, 
it feels a bit more like he is willing to work with an organization that maybe doesn't have as much money as, as its competitors, but still has plenty of money, can still sign a player or two if need be, and will, but isn't going to just be, it's not going to be him at Man City where they will just sign anybody he needs and everybody he wants. It still requires him to be an innovator and think differently and find different ways to utilize different personnel to make it work. I, I just think that that feels like a match made in heaven to me. All right. I did not have a manager. I just chose a player. So I have nothing That's to right. offer in, in this realm. <laughs> then I will just fu- conclude with, has there ever been a stranger physical contrast than, uh, than Julian Nagelsmann and Diego Simeone? Because <laughs> one of them seems like the happy-go-lucky 33-year-old and one of them seems like Diego Simeone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. This, <laughs> I never get them confused. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Me neither. We've got more listener questions to get to, Mr. Grove. But first, shall we have a word from today's sponsor? Yeah, today's show is sponsored by Hims, longtime mm-hmm. sponsors of the Total Soccer Show. Um, they want us to talk about a common issue um, that is uh, men don't talk about it, but we should talk about it. Because mm-hmm. 40% of men by age 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. It is nothing to be embarrassed about. It isn't. And yet, like I think because of society... I feel like it still is. Like I had uh, him sent us some some like different products. They sent us some of the vitamins they have because they do have really nice vitamins. Uh, they have like heart ones and health ones, immunity ones. They've got sleepy time ones. Uh, and even ones. having those out, I did have that moment of like, oh, but what if people think I have erectile dysfunction? And that's not what you should think. You should think, oh, it's a medical issue and I'm dealing with it the way you do with any other medical issue. Absolutely. And I mean, you don't have to tell people about it, right? You can. No, just... you do. It's a legal requirement. It is not. You just go <laughs> via hymns and you can be connected with licensed doctors um, and receive FDA approved pharmaceutical products to treat erectile dysfunction. It's very, very easy. You just answer questions about your medical history, chat with a doctor for the confidential review. Uh, the chances are that you do not know the doctor, so it will not be someone that you know. If approved by your doctor, um, if approved by the doctor, products are shipped directly to your door. Mm-hmm. So you can try Hims today by starting out with a free online visit. Go to forhims.com slash total soccer ed. That's F O R H I M S dot com slash total soccer ed. Forhims.com slash total soccer ed. I'll keep going, Daryl. Prescription products are subject to medical provider approval and require an online consultation with a medical provider who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website for full details and safety information. This could cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or a pharmacy. Remember, that's forhims.com slash totalsockered. The link will be in the show notes. Thank you to Hims for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Josh for asking us our next question. Did you deliberately avoid Josh's second name? No, it was just your turn to ask a question, and I didn't want to jump the gun. <laughs> okay, well, Josh Nagy uh, mm-hmm. wants to know, what would happen to the U.S. men's national team if Christian Pulisic suffered a horrible career-ending injury or randomly decided to retire from soccer? Josh, why would you ask this on, the, on Tyler Adams' day of all days? How dare you, Josh? <laughs> Josh? Josh says, knock on wood, that never happens. Let's actually do that. Uh-huh. That's me knocking on my wooden desk. Um, how key is Pulisic to the success of the national team? Would we have to change our playing style or would we just replace him with a player with a similar style but a lesser skill set? Mm-hmm. I would say he's very, very important. He is not Didier Drogba. He is not Cristiano Ronaldo. And even with the Cristiano Ronaldo example, Portugal still won with him on the sidelines. Like, it is not to say that that would be the end of the program. we got to shut it down until we can find another <laughs> Christian Pulisic. Can, we have, the, shut it can down. we have a different World Cup? Let's not have 2026. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> 
But, like, I think it would be obviously a massive blow and cause massive problems, and there would always be those what-ifs. But I don't think he is so next level that it just means, like, that's it. Our entire game plan was built around him, and now we have nothing. I have a slightly different take, which is that I've seen a lot of games with the U.S. men's national team where it does feel a lot like we're just hoping Christian Pulisic does something. I don't know if that's oh, I see what you're saying, that's yeah. probably not Berhalter's approach, but it's the feeling I have watching, mm-hmm. maybe just emotionally. It's definitely a feeling that the fan base has watching, right? And the game that really sticks out, actually two games really stick out to me. It's when the US played away to England in the Dave Sarakin era. And you remember, it was just like, give the ball to Pulisic and he'll dribble at yeah. some English players um, and he'll beat one, but then lose the ball and it you know, didn't quite work out. The other game is away to Canada in the CONCACAF Nations League. The game that we lost, where Pulisic did not have a good game, right? But the game plan still was like, let's let Pulisic run at some people. Um, mm. And it didn't quite work out. And I always think that a team is not at its best where it relies too heavily on one player. So I, I'm hoping for a future where we don't become too Pulisic dependent. I would argue this happened like, towards the end of the 2018 World Cup qualifying campaign. We got very Pulisic dependent as well. Like when Klinsman rearranged the whole team in that first game against Mexico to play 3-5-2 so Pulisic could play as the 10. Like that ultimately, it might have been good for Pulisic, but it didn't help the national team, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think if Pulisic did have this horrible career-ending injury, again, knock on wood, that it doesn't happen we kind of be okay because there are so many very good players who can be part of the system. There's Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney. And there are guys who can play that sort of wide left or more central attacking uh, player position. Like, I don't know, uh, Jordan Morris, uh, Ulysses Yanez coming through, Gio Reyna. There are players who could play this position and be not quite as good as Christian Pulisic, but still very, very, very good. So I agree with everything you said. I think we agree when it comes to what it means for the actual team and the way they actually play. Yeah. I think it has a much larger ramification for the fan base and for soccer in the United States. Because yes. Because yes, Pulisic yes. is a semi-household name at this point. Like, my parents know who he is. And if he did get injured, you would have that contingent of people who are like, see, like, so- like all the soccer players just get hurt. They're all fragile. And you'd get- have those people who are like, oh, I was into it, but then he got injured. And yeah, I'm going to focus on other things. Like, I think you would have that. You would also have obviously mm. a lot of fans who are just really, really, really sad and would always be sort of wondering what if and what could have been. I think it has a much bigger emotional impact if that were to happen. And now I'm getting nervous. Taylor Rocco, you are 100% right. Yeah, it's it really is about that, right? The public interest yeah. would be somewhat shattered or lost or at least diminished if Pulisic was no longer available to you know be a soccer star like going and playing in the Premier League and getting all these headlines and getting all this attention and I'm already imagining sort of the the very Pulisic focused media coverage of the 2018 World Cup if Mm -hmm. we'd gone and I assume the very media focused uh, Pulisic focused coverage of the 2022 and maybe even 26 World Cup if he's still our leading light and our star player. And that's where I would say to focus it on one very specific aspect of Josh's question. Uh, if Christian Pulisic retired prematurely, like just decided like, yeah, you know what? I'm over it. I think that is immediately the biggest story in U.S. soccer history, genuinely, because <laughs> it is the most exciting prospect that everybody knows that is sort of justifying his transfer fee and playing for one of England's biggest teams, playing in the Champions League to then just sort of walk away. Yeah, that's never I mean, happened before. That's And that's not happening, right? I think nah. Josh has just given us this scenario where what do we do without Pulisic? Um, that is the darkest timeline. That is truly the darkest timeline. Is. Christian, Christian Pulisic walks away. But here's, here's an interesting take on this question is 
you know, obviously the chances are very, very small that there's a career ending injury or Pulisic deciding to retire. Um, but what is possible is that Christian Pulisic continues the rest of his career as he has done so far, which is to have a few months of fitness and then a groin pull or a yeah. hamstring strain or an adductor injury because, you know, the type of like fast player who gets knocked around that he is. There are going to be Pulisic injuries in the future. So I think we're going to have moments where Pulisic is in and out of the US men's national team. It's not even his fault. It just it just seems to be a thing that happens, right? So we are going to have like a Pulisic team and a non-Pulisic team. And I think the best case scenario is that those teams play a very similar style of soccer and you can sort of plug and play Pulisic or Reina or Ulysses Janez or someone else in that left-sided spot and we're not too Pulisic dependent like it doesn't yeah. matter too much if he's there or not in terms of we're a good team if he's there and a bad team if he's not and and yeah like if you if you want further evidence for that like Tyler Adams has played what once in like 18 yes. months for the United he's States played, like he's played once for Greg Berhalter and it was against um Ecuador yeah right exactly and he's like, played and none so- at all for the U.S. since March See, yeah, so we have (laughs) – I see what you did there. But, like, we do have that, like, another incredibly exciting young American who's playing in the Champions League and doing well and scoring goals is, like, is sort of injury-prone, has had to miss a lot of the time, and it has not been the disaster it might have been, like, we might have thought it would be. That said, there haven't been really meaningful games. We haven't missed a World Cup or something like that because of it necessarily. So it's not a huge thing, but it is worth remembering that, like, yeah, we have had a player that we think of as being an automatic inclusion in the starting 11 injured for the last 18 months or so. Okay, so here's how I want to answer Josh's question to give it, like, a a one-line answer. How key is he to the success of the national team? Christian Pulisic is the icing on the cake, Mm -hmm. but we need to make sure we have a nice, solid cake anyway. With or without yeah. the icing. How about that? A nice solid cake. Yeah. Yes. Built Paul on winning, Hollywood does not like your summary. Built on winning balls in midfield. Go on, Tyler Adams. Perfect. Go on, Weston McKenney. LFG. <laughs> All right. You ready for the next question? I am indeed. Uh, nice, nice non-cursing, by the way. <laughs> Yoshio Drescher. Why are English players so much more expensive in the transfer market compared to foreign players with similar CVs? For example, Ben Chilwell versus Nicola Taliafico. Taliafico. So if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Nicola uh, Taliafico, he is an Argentinian left back who plays for Ajax. Ben Chilwell is an English left back who plays for Leicester City. And Wait, Ben the, Chilwell's the English one? The, no. He sure is. And the transfer rumours indicate that essentially... If Leicester City were to let Ben Chilwell leave to another Premier League team, the asking price is £80 million. Mm. Last summer, Leicester City's asking price for Harry Maguire was £85 million, making him the most expensive defender ever in the entire world. If Taliafico were to move from Ajax to a Premier League team or from Ajax to anywhere else, I would gamble and I would bet all my money that it would not be for £80 million. No, So basically, uh, Yoshio's uh, premise is correct. So why are English players so much more expensive in the transfer market compared to similar mm. players who happen to be foreign? We've already talked about this off air, right? Taylor? Mm-hmm. Essentially, I think we came up with a list of like three, four or five reasons. So should we just, should we just bat reasons back and forth? Not surprisingly, I think I had five of those reasons of the three or four. Uh, I think it can be sort of boiled down to two for me. Uh, I'll take the first one, which is the roster requirements, that you have to have homegrown players yep. on your team. Uh, otherwise, you have big penalties. And I think I'm also correct in saying that uh, like academy players don't count as the 25-player senior squad. So if you have a player from the academy, they can play for your team. They don't have to be like on the official roster, so it gives you bonuses there. So you want as many English players as possible. So I think that's a huge part, is you don't... Yep. 
don't want to just sell them off because you have to have them in that league. And to give some detail, um, it's eight homegrown players that you have to have in your Premier League squad. And homegrown just means that you essentially came up through an academy in England, right? So mm-hmm. if Ben Chilwell were to leave Leicester and go to Chelsea, he is still then a Chelsea homegrown player. So exactly. that does give you an extra bit, um, an extra bit of value. All right, and Man what? City, who historically like struggle to bring through academy players, that's why there is almost like an English player tax in addition for them yes. because they often need English players to keep them uh, compliant. There we go. So okay, what was your second reason, Taylor? Uh, it was one that I think we kind of stumbled on together. So I was going to let you go with it, but it's it's roughly the idea that they don't need the money. Yes, yeah, Leicester City, because they're a Premier League team, they have an ownership group that has poured some money in, but there's also just tons of TV money coming into England, coming into the Premier League. I feel like I'm constantly stressing this because I'm not sure people fully appreciate how much more money you get for being a Premier League team than you do for being an Eredivisie team, even if you're Ajax, the biggest Eredivisie team. Right. Um, yeah. Ajax, to some extent, need to sell players at some point. A lot of other teams around the world need to sell players at some point to balance the books. A team like Leicester City, because they're in the Premier League, because there's all that TV money, they do not need to sell. And when you don't need to sell, you obviously sell for above market price. Right. Mm-hmm. Ben Chilwell is not worth £80 million. I love him, but he's not worth £80 million. But if you're Leicester City and you don't really want to lose him, then the price can be elevated to 80 because that's your asking price, right? That's the price at which I would part with Ben Chilwell because I don't need to lose him. Yeah, exactly. And so you you really, there's not a lot of leverage aside from we will pay you an astronomical fee for this player yeah. and only when that fee is on the table will the team accept. Otherwise, yeah, we're going to hold on to them because they're very good for us and we don't need to sell them. And then the flip side of the market is because it's often English teams buying these English players, those other English teams have all that TV money to spend. Yep. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. why, for example, with Harry Maguire, Leicester could ask for 85, which was ridiculous for Harry Maguire, even though I love him too. Man United could eventually afford to pay 85 because that, that's just the English club economy because there's so much money sloshing around in the Premier League, right? That's the, yeah. that's the basic thing. And then the only other minor thing that I would add to that is just because, generally speaking, yes, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, English players tend to stay in England and play for the Premier League team or a championship team or what have you. Maybe they go to Scotland, but it's usually hey, on that island of a- sorts. Adam Ola um, was on the bench for Leipzig today. Uh, again, some exceptions. Keir <laughs> Trippier played for like, um, oh, yeah. but I think that if you had more British players going to Europe and playing for continental teams, then I do think you have more movement, and I don't think they're as expensive because for what you've already talked about, if you have like Eric Dyer playing in Portugal, oh wait, we did. He's able to move for not a lot of money because it's not quite that same thing, and because those Portugal teams are happy to sell on players, they need that money. So I yeah, think yeah. if there were more English players playing abroad, you probably would see a bit more movement for a bit less oh, yeah, money because they'd be coming from clubs that want to sell to want to bring in some money, right? Exactly. Here's here's another big reason. I think it's because because English players stay in the Premier League, when you're buying um, a player from another Premier League team, like a Maguire Mm -hmm. or a Chilwell, they are Premier League tested, like Premier League proved, in a way that players coming in from outside are not, right? And it's... This isn't me saying that like the Premier League is the best in the world, but I would say that there is a thing about certain players essentially don't like or can't quite manage playing in England, even really high-quality players like Angel Di Maria, right? It can be that you get to England and, for example, you find out that it's grey 350 out of 365 days a year Mm -hmm. and you just don't want to live here. 
right? Except that, for, as uh, Sam Ty reminded us, the two weeks when it's boiling hot and miserable and you can't go outside. Yeah, well, because no one has air conditioning because it's so rare, right? That's Dude, happening right now. I did now. not it's, realize that. It's been 35 Celsius recently in England. Everybody is complaining about it. It's borderline hilarious. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm really making a serious point here is that Ben Chilwell is not going to be surprised by the weather in London if he moves to Chelsea mm. in a way that maybe of another player might, right? If, if anything, he'll be thrilled with the weather in London, right? Yeah, it's a little bit farther south, so it's a little bit better, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, England is so small that the players' families aren't necessarily mm. going to be shocked by relocating a little bit. They might not even have to relocate because England is so small that you can you can travel, right? So there is this thing of just Premier English players are comfortable in the Premier League because they're all there already. So then you're sort of buying a certain guarantee that they're not going to be unsettled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. And also your people have no culture and thus don't enjoy other people's cultures. Is that about right? I mean, I, you know how that vote went in 2016. <laughs> don't, yeah, kind of. <laughs> don't get me started, Mr. Rockwell. Don't get all right, me started. so we got some answers there, man. We ended up with four good ones, I yeah, think. Yeah, there we go. Not bad at all. Also yeah. not bad at all, today's sponsor, mm-hmm. Fubo TV, which, as we all know, is an over-the-top um, internet TV streaming service. Yes, endorsed by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, we have talked about Fubo many times. We will continue to, to talk about Fubo for many yeah. times because they are wonderful. Once again, uh, DVR'd them, uh, the, today's Champions League game using uh, TUDNA, uh, and then was able to just go upstairs before we started recording and sit down, stare at my computer screen, and watch a bunch of different stuff. And it makes it super, super easy. And of course, once again, I did forget to record it before the game started, which is a thing that I always do and Daryl always remembers. But it doesn't matter with Fubo because as long as you remember midway through, you're good to go. Time travel back. Backfill DVR. That's what you get mm. on Fubo. They really should brand it and, and trademark that. Um, and I really, I just want to clarify, that is not me repeating the same t- copy point over and over and over again. It, it is, is just bit. literally a thing that happens every single time <laughs> that I am forever appreciative of. It's you repeating the same almost mistake over and over and over. It really is. But then Fubo, like 15 minutes in, like clockwork. I'm like, oh, right, DVR. Fubo saving you every single time. <laughs> the important thing, whenever you are going with like a non-traditional TV package, right? Because essentially Fubo is a replacement for cable, right? You get Mm-hmm. Fubo on like your Apple TV or your Roku or your Amazon Fire. Is that what it's called? Um, so it's an app that you can uh, have all your TV channels through. The important thing is that Fubo is soccer focused. You get NBC Sports, so you'll get the Premier League. Um, you get ESPN, ESPN2, Fox Sports 1, Fox Sports 2, um, ESPN Deportes, uh, 2Day NA, all the soccer channels that you could possibly want and that big old DVR to stick all the games on. And and I'll say, they know their stuff. And maybe this is like a learning algorithm. I hope not, because Skynet. But like, <laughs> if you log in and the Champions League is happening, usually one of the first icons you're going to get is for the Champions League. Like, it tends yes. to know you people want live sports. There are live sports happening. Here are all the ones you can choose from. And it's just a tile that you click on, and then that game is right there. So it's not even a thing where you log in, then you have to go to soccer, then navigate to today, yeah, then yeah. navigate to the league you want. Like It is right there. Makes it really easy so that, say, you have forgotten the DVR, uh, you can go to it and it's pretty much right there and you can just get it done really quickly yeah they really do foreground the soccer they're not joking when they say that it's soccer first you also can navigate to soccer and you get this like weird calendar of all the soccer matches available for days and days and days and you can scroll through and see you basically see what soccer is coming up right i use Mm -hmm. it to sort of plan my not social engagements but my soccer engagements on my tv Mm. Um, i like to use it to give me programmed anxiety every time i go to look at what we're going to talk about for the weekend (laughs) review and see how many games are happening and how many of them you can watch it gets a little bit intimidating 
You also can get a seven-day free trial if you go to fubo.tv slash TSS. Fubo.tv slash TSS. You get a seven-day free trial. Fubo even reminds you when the free trial is about to be up. They're not trying to trick you. Uh, They know that just sampling Fubo will make you probably want to get it for life. Yeah, so uh, you can do that. You can get it for life, and you will not regret it. So go to fubo.tv slash TSS and start your free trial today. All right, thank you, Fubo, for sponsoring today's show. Am I right in thinking we have two more listener questions, Taylor? You are indeed, my friend. All right, next one comes from Karim Rahamtullah. Karim mm-hmm. wants to know... Oh, we, we, uh, we pre-screened and approved and are mm-hmm. looking forward to answering this question, right? If the U.S. had a more soccer-first sporting culture... Do you think the U.S. would be a soccer superpower already? Mm -hmm. I.e., if the best athletes all went into soccer, or is that just a myth we tell ourselves? Like LeBron James probably could have been a pro soccer player if he played all his life, but probably wouldn't dominate the game like he does with basketball. To me, this is sort of an interesting take on this question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're not saying, would we be better if LeBron James played, bas- or played soccer instead of basketball? We're saying, is that really a thing or is it potentially a myth? Yeah. So let's, can we get into the LeBron James part of this first before we sure. get into what I think is the more interesting part about what a soccer first sporting culture would look like and would produce in the United States? Um, sure. So it's worth noting, I've seen LeBron James try to do keepy-uppies and this man who is one of the greatest athletes of all time, looked like he had two surfboards for legs, <laughs> right? He mm. was not not a graceful uh, juggler, even though he is a magnificently graceful basketball player. I would make the argument that, especially we always focus on basketball players because they're such big personalities, that literally the height of basketball players make the famous guys like LeBron James, six foot nine LeBron James, mm-hmm. quite unlikely to be someone is who... Is he really six foot nine? Yeah. The average height of an NBA player is six foot seven, right? Mm-hmm. That is absolutely rare for soccer like peter crouch yang cola it's like a smattering of guys who managed to play professional soccer and be that tall soccer is a low center of gravity sport for the most part so i would argue that a lot of these big names that that skill is not necessarily going to transfer to soccer but you might get guys like do you remember joey rodriguez yeah so he was a, for people who don't know, he was a VCU mm. college basketball player when VCU went to the final four. He's like, he's definitely like 5'10", 5'11", type guy, right? Shot loads of threes, but basically wasn't of a stature to go to the NBA. I think he's the type of guy that maybe becomes a professional soccer player in a soccer first sporting culture. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's probably true. A couple of things there. Muggsy Bogues, like- he'd be <laughs> someone's left back. Oh, we can't take Muggsy away from basketball. <laughs> Muggsy is basketball for life. He has to be there. He is the inspirational story for all of the short people who want to play basketball. <laughs> and it is somewhat possible if you're Muggsy Bogues or Spud Webb. Yeah. Um, the juggling thing I want to focus in on for a moment. Yeah. Because this is going to sound harsh, but it is a thing that I think is true. There are certain ways that you can tell a person who has played soccer from when they were young versus when they picked it up as they were older. Juggling is a big part of that. So too is like your first touch, just the way people approach the soccer ball. The one I always go with is Chad Johnson when he decided he was going to be a professional soccer player for two weeks. (laughs) Um, You could see it there that it was just a little stiff-legged. It's a weird stiff-legged approach if you're not quite used to it. And would that be the case if they had grown up playing soccer? Probably not. They would have grown up playing it, so their touch would be better. So maybe that solves LeBron's touch problem a little bit. But the point still stands that soccer does have tall players on occasion. You do have six foot four center backs, but 
the the height is a big part of it. I think you're absolutely correct. I can't name you a six foot nine football player. There probably is one somewhere, but there's not one in a like a top five league in Europe. What was the Russian striker who was enormous in the World Cup? He, he probably wasn't even that tall, was he? He was probably like six foot five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Zuba, right? Yes. Uh, so, uh, and that's how tall Zlatan is, as he's six foot five, too. So LeBron still has two inches on him, which is, which is a sizable difference. <laughs> Four uh, inches. But the biggest thing, I think, just generally speaking, is I do think it's kind of a myth that I think that, yeah, if more people were playing soccer, maybe we're better, but it also means there are probably people who would fall even further through the cracks. Do you have smaller players going as far? Do you have people in the current pool that you have because other people weren't playing soccer so they could? You know, I think there are... It's, it's a sliding doors, butterfly effect sort of thing, but I think it is a little bit more of a myth than I might have thought it was a couple of years ago. So we disagree in here because what I'm basically arguing is, yes, if we had a soccer-first sporting, sporting culture, the U.S. would be a soccer superpower because it would be everybody's first-choice sport because like more money than there is right now would be poured into it. It would just mm-hmm. be a bigger thing that everybody would go to first. But the thing that I'm... I can't tell you if I'm agreeing or disagreeing with Kareem, but... It wouldn't be the names that you know already, right? It wouldn't be famous um, NFL or especially not NBA players. It would just be some other guys that you'd never heard of who would be that, no, that, who would become famous soccer players. We agree, and that's a much better way of yeah. putting it than what I was. I couldn't quite crystallize it because, like, we should clarify. Like, when you say we talked about this before, it's not to say that we have the conversation we're having now before we start recording because we do not talk for two hours before we start yeah. recording a show. No, this is uh, a conversation about whether to answer this question or not, right? Yeah, and and I think that that was what I haven't really been able to hit upon is that yes, I, that is what I agree with, Daryl. Is that we would probably like, yeah, if all the money were on soccer and all the eyes were on soccer, yes, it's going to be the dominant sport, so it's going to have more people playing it, so we're going to be better. There's going to be more people involved. So people well, you won't have what 300,000 people watching the MLS's back tournament final you'll yeah. have 3 million or 30 million <laughs> who knows so if you had that then you have more eyes you have more interest yes i think they'd be better but then i think fundamentally important is that yeah it would not be oh this boxer and this football player yeah. and this basketball player are now the starting three like front three for the united states i don't think it works that and way and just now. just to really underline this argument you do get people like uh, bo jackson right who are multi-sport mm-hmm. athletes or Deion sanders right who are multi-sport athletes but i my argument is that most people like say lebron james they're incredible basketball players because it's just perfectly suited to them Mm -hmm. right i don't think it's transferable to a completely different sport unless you are that sort of rare magnificent person like Deion sanders right Mm -hmm. so if we take that we take that as fact and we move on to what happens if you have a soccer first sporting culture in the u.s what would that actually look like like for example there'd be like bidding wars between cbs and Fox and ESPN, and not for streaming channels, but for prime time to screen MLS and the Premier League and soccer. Soccer would be the thing that was on TVs and everybody in bars was watching everywhere. It would be fascinating to see if we would have one league or several. I think that would be Mm. the biggest thing, was that if you had, if it were the number one sport, the NFL is the number one sport, I believe, in terms of spectators. It might be NASCAR, but I think it's NFL. Uh, Like, or in terms of people tuning in, but you still only have the one league. You have other ones that sort of pop up here and there. The Rock is, I think, buying the XFL. We'll see how that goes. (laughs) Uh, But, like, so would you then still have that? And to some extent, to be depressing, like, would it then be the same scenario of you have a closed league and a closed system, you don't have a lot of lower leagues and lower play, lower league development as a result, do you end up with just a, a weird, stratified oh, no. soccer landscape? Oh, yeah, you're right. Because, yeah, there'd be like billionaire owners who are just like mm-hmm. squeezing everybody out and making sure that 
they make their money in extracting yeah. money from the game without developing. It's really interesting, right? Because baseball and basketball um, and the other football have never had to really face um, significant international competition, right? Both yeah. on the international stage, like when the uh, the Olympic basketball team goes and plays Croatia or Spain, we never really worry too much that we might be falling behind, right? In a way that makes everybody panic and say, we've got to invest more in grassroots basketball so that we can beat Croatia. It's never yeah. got to that to that level yet, right? But, no, because fundamentally, the NBA is going to be the dominant league in the world. Yeah. So even if the United States loses an Olympics or two, it still has like, oh, all right, well, let's go back to the drawing board. Yeah. Do we still have the best league where everybody wants to play? Oh, well, then things are fine. <laughs> so we, if in, in this scenario, are we assuming that MLS is the dominant league in the world? Or are we just assuming that like the Premier League is the dominant sporting spectacle that everybody wants to watch in the United States? Probably somewhere in between. I don't. <laughs> I think because it would require... Like, if we're doing this fully as a made-up scenario, yeah. it would have to be that, like, we never had the dark age of soccer where yeah, of we course, don't qualify of course, for World sure. Cup for forever. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, it's the brightest timeline. We're in a completely different right. timeline. And, and so, like, and what I mean there is that you have to not have the American stigma that we still have about American players going. I, I've talked to, like, Sam Ty and a few other people about this, that you still get that, like, now let me first explain to you, Daryl, whenever I talk to, like, an, like, sometimes when I talk to an English person, you get that, like, now we call it football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you know, like, like you have to remove that stigma before the United States can have that level of yeah, standing so, in the soccer community. So Americans going over abroad and playing the Premier League or Bundesliga would be the same, they'd be greeted the same as, say, Brazilians, let's say. Exactly. Yeah. And then I think maybe you have more people and like the league is stronger and more people see coming to the United States as a an attractive opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so like maybe you have a stronger you, – I still don't think it is at the end of the day the biggest league in the world though just because of travel considerations. All right. Well, let's just cut this to the bone then and say sure. that it's almost self-fulfilling, right? The original part of the mm-hmm. question. If the U.S. had a more soccer-first sporting culture, would the U.S. be a soccer superpower already? I think yes – if the, mm-hmm. a lot of U.S. resources were concentrated on creating um, soccer players to the highest level possible, either to perform in the United States or to be sold for transfer fees overseas, then yes, the U.S. would produce um, a, a soccer superpower, at least at the level of like you know the other powers like Germany or France or England or Brazil or Argentina. We'd be competing with those nations. There's just uh, there's just too not- there's too many resources here to uh, for it to not happen, and too many people. Knowing, okay, this is another, sorry to add another wrinkle to this, but I'm actually curious what you think about this. If then we do have that model in place, knowing what we know about NBA and NFL and other leagues to some extent, does college then matter more? (laughs) Because you have to have a a proving ground of sorts. Yeah, in an example of this, um, every college soccer game would have like, you know, University of Michigan would sell out the big house, 100,000 people to go and watch a college soccer game. Man, that'd be weird. Yeah. We're talking about a completely so would, different culture, right? All right. So that's so. Whenever we get that question now, how do we make college soccer relevant? We just direct them to an alternate world yes. in which this has happened. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Like you need, you need to watch. Dark Have you seen Stargate or Sliders? <laughs> watch those. That's how. That's how it would go. So I feel like we've answered the question. <laughs> we've talked about it a lot. That's for sure. That is definitely for sure. So let's move on to Patrick Delaney's question. Mm. Um, will Victor Osimhen's departure from Lille? mean more playing time for Tim Weir? I've asked, honestly, Taylor, I included this question because I know there's a very obvious answer, but I wanted to get it out there. You're going to make me say it, aren't you? Yeah. 
No, it doesn't, <laughs> sadly. Why not? I got Tyler? really excited because I hadn't really thought about that. And then when the question came in, I was like, oh, yeah, that, that could mean that. I think there are situations in which it would. I think his injury and the fact that we have not seen him play for so long, you can't then jump to the conclusion that, like, oh, he has shown that he can handle it. He has shown that he can start on occasion and be fine. So, yeah, they're going to roll the dice. This feels like, no, they had an amazing offer for a player that they knew they could then replace with a player that they expect to be as good or around as good for much less money, and that's what they've done because Jonathan David is already there. Yes, so the short version of that is they sold Victor mm-hmm. Osimhen for €70 million Euros to Napoli. So Tim Weyer briefly went up the pecking order at striker at Lille, but then Lille, who are very good at investing their money, signed Canadian striker Jonathan David from Ghent for €30 million. Euros. So Jonathan David is essentially their new star player. €30 million Euros is a lot of money for Lille to spend. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because their usual business model is bring them in for much less than that, sell them on for a lot more, as exemplified by Osimhen. But with 30 million, you're basically saying we are expecting to keep this guy around and then maybe we'll sell him for 100 million at some point. But aside from that, yeah, he is a permanent solution to the extent that like I hope your summary of the situation is correct. What would be far more upsetting is if Timothy Weah did not move up the depth chart, even when Osemin was gone, because it was sort of like, yeah, we don't really know what to make of you yet, so we'll keep evaluating that one, but in the meantime, we definitely need to bring in another striker. That would be problematic for sure. Well, I think Adam Bell's got it right when he appeared on the Total Soccer Show, which is that Tim Weah has had two really serious injuries and been out for roughly a year. So it really is a thing of like, are you on the same trajectory as before and it's just briefly interrupted? Or are you, you know, reduced as a player because these are really serious injuries? Like, I think when you get yeah. those really bad injuries earlier in your career, there's a chance that you don't come back the same again. We have to really be prepared for things to not go well uh, for Tim Weah's career. I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying it is a possibility. And Lil would be insane to just gamble everything on Tim yeah. Weah's health. This is a little bit like our Weston McKenney conversation, right? Where we look at it from a what's best for the U.S. men's national team perspective, but clubs don't look at it that way at all, right? Like clubs don't care Players about that are somewhat expendable, no. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. But the, and the, sorry, the more optimistic thing is it's not like a one-for-one competition where Osimhen and Weah were competing for a centre-forward spot, and now Jonathan yeah. David and Tim Weah are competing for right. a centre-forward spot. Tim Weah is nice and versatile, right? He can play yep. left or right or as a support striker because he's not just a goal scorer. He's a guy who is magnificent at... Um, or was at least magnificent at connecting play and making things happen from little pockets of space that are like um, out left or out right. So it's not as if um, David and Weah can't play in the same team together. I'm going to put on my Eeyore tail for you for a moment just to say that the other aspect of this is that uh, Lille consistently, continually are linked with a move for Rangers' Alfredo Morelos. Mm. Uh, they've been heavily linked to the point where I think Lille's owner said it was a done deal, and then Steven Gerrard came out and said they're very far apart. There's no such thing as a done deal yet, but he is still a 24-year-old left-footed attacker who can play on either side. That so, worries me more. I think that is where I'm a little bit more concerned. That worries me more. Yep. Um, well, let's, mm. let's close by reminding ourselves that Tyler Adams is credited with scoring the winner in a Champions League quarterfinal on this very day. There we go. Yeah, Ballon d'Or, guaranteed. <laughs> well, maybe not this year, right? Maybe, yeah, maybe we can give out the Ballon d'Or this year since I think since we should. we're not doing it. <laughs> I think we should do that definitely as a show. <laughs> we should uh, take it upon ourselves and act as though we have been given that responsibility <laughs> to award the Ballon d'Or to whomever we choose. Let's leave it to the BR Football Ranks podcast to do, to do that. <laughs> I would say you could nominate Tyler Adams for the, if there was a Ballon d'Or for Comeback Player of the Year. 
uh, based on his really rough injury-riddled uh, season and then what he did today. Yeah, the nominees for that category are Tyler Adams and Christian Pulisic. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the um, stipulations is you have to be American. Well, we don't say that out loud. Yes. <laughs> it's a secret stipulation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no Jonathan Davids allowed. <laughs> Unimportant um, rule. Yeah. Speaking of American things, I think we just want to give a Total Soccer Show shout out to Reggie yeah. Cannon. We love you, yes, Reggie we Cannon. We do. We love Reggie Cannon a lot for reasons both on and off the field. Absolutely, absolutely. And we look forward to seeing more Reggie Cannon for the U.S. men's national team for all kinds of reasons, both on and off the field. Um, Total Soccer Show, Taylor. Total Soccer Show, you're nodding. Excellent. Total Soccer Show coming up, we have the Bayern Barcelona game, which we will be reviewing on Friday. Is that correct? Um, and some, it is. I'm so excited. Some more listener questions as well. Maybe not six. This felt like a lot, right, to go on top of a game review. But we'll have some listener questions after Bayern Barcelona. And then on Saturday, Taylor's taking a day off. I'll be here with Joe Lowry to review Man City versus Leon and take some listener questions. So if you have some US men's national team or Major League Soccer listener questions that you want Joe to answer, um, please submit the questions at totalsoccershow.com slash questions and maybe just type in there somewhere for joe and then taylor won't answer them but joe will how about that i mean hurtful but that seems fair i, th- I think that is fair um <laughs> all right taylor we have gone very long but i've enjoyed uh-huh. it i always enjoy talking to you you are the absolute best i will close by saying taylor rockwell thank you for taking the time to talk to me today Right back at you, buddy. Always a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you again tomorrow after Bayern versus Barcelona. <laughs>